So, in our Sunday school series, we've been uh, going through our ecclesiology, again, for the final purpose of eventually getting to where we talk about our responsibilities towards each other in this local assembly, what it means to do the one and others of the New Testament for each other. But to get there, we've been laying a lot of foundational work. And Caleb, a few weeks ago, outlined that the Bible is our authority. It's also clear and sufficient. And then we went to apply that to our life together. First, we talked about Christian liberty, um, talking about how Christ has freed us from the bondage of sin so that we are free to love each other and serve each other and free to serve Christ according to our biblically informed consciences. And to put a finer point on that, I cannot call something you are doing sin if the Bible does not call it sin. And there's a liberty there for us to make different judgment calls on the things that the Bible does not call sin. But when it comes to when we gather together, we started talking about last week the regulative principle of worship. When we come together to worship as an assembly, there's something different about when we're together. And one of those major differences is we only do what God has commanded us to do or, is what it, or what is necessarily implied by what God commands us to do. Um, we came to introduce this doctrine by emphasizing how, we, how it is different when we come together. We went to Matthew 18, talked about when you see the, the, the text about church discipline, and it ends with, for where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am, in your midst. Now, this is not just a general platitude, although God is everywhere and He is all present, but Christ is present in a special way when His people are gathered as His people, as in the case of applying church discipline. And we we saw the comparison in the Old Testament to the tabernacle. God has always been omnipresent. He's always been all present. But when it came to the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies... God was present there in a different way, in a special way. And then when you come to the temple, the same thing. Yes, God is all present. But God is present in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in a different way. And this idea carries on into the New Testament, where the new temple is the gathered people. And when the people gather, God is present in a special way. And that means just as there were different rules for how you approached God in the tabernacle and the temple, so there are different rules for how we approach God in the modern temple, in, his, in the gathering. We also looked at Colossians 2 to impress upon us that there is a liberating nature to the regulative principle of worship. You are not bound to come here and worship in, a, in any way that Caleb and I think is fit. You're only bound by what Scripture commands. And our job as elders is to lead in a way that we are not imposing on you anything that is not imposed by Scripture. So, with all of that, uh, just to ask a question and then we'll have some back and forth. Why do we do what we do here with this being the case? And we begin every service with a call to worship. Um, some of this is more logical, but with a call to worship, there has to be a definitive start to when the, the meeting 
when the gathering is a gathering in the name of the Lord. There has to be a definitive start. And we see language all through the Old Testament in the Psalms. There's commands to come, commands to sing. There's many calls to worship in the Psalms. One example is Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And so there's an invitation to enter into this experience where this is different than the rest of the week. You're coming and you're taking part in the gathered worship of God's people. So, why do we sing together? What texts command us to sing together? Colossians 3. Colossians 3.16 is what I have. Let the, word of the, uh, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so here we're commanded in the New Testament to be singing to each other. And I, the language here is admonishing one another in all wisdom. I think there's a sense in which we're admonishing one another as we're singing. I think it's helpful to think of when we're singing the hymns we sing, the psalms we sing, we're declaring true things about God to each other in each other's hearing. And there should be a great encouragement that comes from hearing everyone proclaim these truths and the unity we have in them, which is why it's important that we're careful about what songs we sing. Um, what other texts would we go to to see a command to sing? Ephesians and Colossians have a lot in common. Not necessarily, but... Yeah, Psalm 33. There are a lot of psalms that command us to sing, command us to rejoice. Um, Psalm 15, or Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise making the best use of the time that, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks, giving, or giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, and just for some example, I have Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise is in the assembly of the godly. You have many psalms that begin in this way. Psalm 33 being one of them that we'll be hearing from this morning. So, I think it's, it ought to be clear to us that we should be singing when we're gathered together. And we should be singing things that are true about God and encouraging each other to godliness. What about praying? Where are we commanded to pray when we come together?
or at least where are we shown that people did pray when they came together? Yeah, two, yeah, or at least maybe one, two, but <laughs> I have Acts chapter two, and you'll see several things in this text, Acts two forty two. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I have one other text. Um, 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And First Timothy is very good. Remember, we were there last week talking about the regulative principle because in First Timothy 3... Starting in verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of, and a pillar and buttress of truth. So 1 Timothy is written to tell us how to behave when we come together. And we find in 1 Timothy 2, we're commanded to pray. Pray for all kinds of people. So again, I hope you're seeing that we're asking these questions because we don't, we don't want to appear as if we're only doing what we do here just because we think it's a good idea. We're doing what we do here because we feel like Scripture commands us to do it. So what about Scripture readings? Any texts come to mind that tell us we ought to be reading Scripture out loud when we're together? Mm, I don't know. Do you rightly dividing the word of truth? Word of truth? Um, I think that certainly comes to preaching. Well, certainly we ought to do it as individuals, and certainly um, when the word comes to be preached, we want it to be rightly divided. In Timothy, yeah. Yes. 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 First Timothy 4, if you're still in First Timothy. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So you see preaching here too, but also the public reading of Scripture is commanded among God's people. Um, Revelation 1.3 is interesting because there's a blessing on those who read the Word of God and those who hear it. But um, you also see an example in Acts 15.21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues 
So you see the long-standing example of God's people. The Word of God is read publicly, not even necessarily exegeted, although we're going to come to preaching is also necessary. But it's also necessary to just read the Word of God and let it say what it will say. But I think 1 Timothy 4 is especially clear. Why do we gather offerings during the service? Yeah. 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 We see that there. Um, I think you see an interesting example in 1 Corinthians 16. That the example of the early church, Paul commands the people to gather money. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So there's, already, there's a practice of these churches gathering funds on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, when they gather. Why are they gathering that money? First Timothy, again, is very helpful. So First Timothy 5 can basically be divided into two sections about what the church is to do with that money. First section is uh, dealing with the, the provision for widows and orphans. So the church is to use this money to help those that need help financially. And then the second half of the chapter is to provide for the eldership so that they might teach and pray without having to be overly encumbered in other jobs. So I think it's pretty clear when we're gathering the offerings, this is also something that God has commanded us to do. What about preaching? We already saw 1 Timothy 4. Um, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Are there any other texts that come to mind? You're talking about the gift of prophecy, like desire to prophesy because it's good for everybody and it's clear. Yeah. Ricky. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you have the public reading and the explanation of the reading, which is what preaching is. You have 2 Timothy 4. Paul charges Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The Lord's Supper. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Again, Acts 2.42. The breaking of bread is mentioned there. Um, But what text do we go to every week for the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11. We can go to 1 Corinthians 11 and see what it says about the Lord's Supper. When we're reading in 1 Corinthians 11, you can see in verses 18 through 20, 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So Paul is criticizing the way they're having the Lord's Supper, but it's clear that in this text, they are gathering every week and they are eating the Lord's Supper every week. I think it's clear. I know other churches have differences there, but I think it's pretty clear they're doing this every week. Um, 23 through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's the command. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Very clear command that we are to be doing this. And then 1 Corinthians 11.33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Again, there's an idea that this is happening regularly. And I think in the context of the whole passage, I think it is happening every week. They're commanded to do it. It's commanded to be a regular part of the worship of God's people. Now, we talk about announcements. Announcements are not commanded in Scripture. So we try to have a clear... We try to do it either before the call to worship or try to do it after the service is over. We try to keep those outside of the service because we don't, we think it breaks up the worship service unnecessarily. So you might remember we used to do it before the service, now we've tried to change it to after so that um, there might be an easier time if you see an announcement you can talk to somebody. But that's one where we handle it differently because we don't think it's explicitly commanded. So any questions on any of that? And again, the whole point of doing that is to show you that we're, we're not worshiping in a way that seems good to us, at least we're trying not to. We're trying to worship in a way where we can point, this is how God commands us to be worshipped. So, there might be a natural question after this, which is, with this being the case, how is it that faithful churches can worship in different ways on the Lord's Day? Because faithful churches do worship in different ways. Not every faithful church does exactly the same things in the same order, in the same way that we do. So, how is that? How does that work? The Reformed tradition has helpfully, I think, distinguished between what are called the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. And we get at least some of this language from our confession, chapter 1, verse, or paragraph 6. Uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word of God, and that there are circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the rules of the Word 
which are always to be observed. Um, Before we talk about circumstances, it might be good to talk about the language necessarily contained because it talks about how everything we need to live righteously before God is either expressly in the Word of God or uh, necessarily contained. Caleb asked the question last week about good and necessary consequence. That language actually does come from the Westminster Confession, which is the, uh, the parallel paragraph says much of the same thing. It just uses the language of good and necessary consequence. Um, what do we mean when we talk this way? Sam Waldron gives a definition. Uh, what may be sound logic deduced from Scripture, that is to say, what is necessarily contained in it, has the authority of Scripture itself. So, if the Scriptures teach in such a way that doesn't explicitly say this, but it kind of requires me to think this, to make sense of it, then that thing has the same authority as the Word of God itself. R.C. Sproul says, put simply, this means that not just the explicit text, but also the truths that unavoidably arise from the text are also part of the meaning of God's Word. And this is meant to be strong language, like unavoidably rising from the text. Um... I think the best example is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity does not have a specific text that tells you that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it is necessarily contained in the Word of God. There is no way to understand all the texts of Scripture without understanding and affirming the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, um, that's why the church for almost 2,000 years has held the doctrine of the Trinity to the same standard as anything explicitly taught in Scripture because it's necessarily contained. And you do damage to your faith and your theology by denying it. And by denying it, you're going to necessarily also deny certain biblical texts. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? So, the, the whole reason we bring that up is this also applies to our worship. When we're trying to worship God, we're talking about things that are explicitly in the text or necessarily implied by good and necessary consequence from the text. Um, so, that's that. Yes? Okay, so that part, uh, necessarily implied, is that not where um, some debate over baptism has come from? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. The, the regulative principle of worship does not rescue us from some subjectivity. There is still going to be some subjectivity and how what we think is a good and necessary consequence from the text. There's no, way, there's no getting away from that. We're still fallen. We still don't understand the text perfectly. So faithful people are going to come to the text and think this is necessarily implied. And then someone else is going to come and say, it is not necessarily implied. We have to do what is right in our own mind. 
we have to worship according to, to worship against our conscience would be sin. But again, like we said a few weeks ago, the conscience is not Lord. The Lord is the Lord of the conscience. So it's not good enough to just say my conscience won't allow me. I need to be striving to inform my conscience with God's word. But at the end of the day, you cannot worship in a way that violates your conscience. Are you going to add something? Yeah. But you said perfectly that uh, it, it's my own sinful mind yeah. that complicates scripture. Yeah. And the reason we come to different opinions is because we're, we're sinners. And right. We get things wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, to get more into this, this is where the language of elements and circumstances of worship can be helpful, but again, there's still some subjectivity to this. So, what are the definitions of these things? The elements of worship are the parts of worship. The things that we just went through. Reading scripture, praying, uh, Lord's Supper. These are the parts of, ser- parts of our worship. And those are untouchable. The circumstances are things peculiar to different times and different cultures and different people and how those things are aided. So an easy example is The Lord does not command in Scripture that I use voice amplification. But we use voice amplification as a circumstance of our worship because it is helping the preaching of the Word, the public reading of Scripture, those things. Obviously, this can get subjective very quick. (laughs) And there are a lot of debates as to what is circumstantial and what is not circumstantial. One of the clearest ones in our Reformed history is the use of instruments in worship service, or whether we can sing man-made songs or only songs that arise from Scripture. We are necessarily arguing that the piano is a circumstance of our singing, in that it is not an element, it is adding to and helping the singing of God's people. There are a lot of Presbyterians that would pull their hair out at hearing that, (laughs) and say that the piano is not a circumstance of singing, a circumstance of worship, it is something forbidden, or necessarily forbidden in that it is not commanded. Obviously, we debate that, and we have to come to our own conclusions as a church as to how we're going to do that. So, any questions about any of that so far? I think of in Acts, there's a lot of baptisms that aren't necessarily happening on the Lord's Day. So, a lot of times it's just the gospel's preached, people repent, baptisms are done. So, I mean, we try to do baptism on the Lord's Day, but I don't see any reason that Scripture would require that. Mm-hmm. And baptism is necessarily something that is done together. Yeah. So for us, it just makes sense that we would do it more together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we do see some circumstances where, like with us, first, 
1 Corinthians 16 and the gathering of the offering, that did take place on the Lord's Day. So we do see some of that language. But yeah, I think you're right. There needs to be, we, we want some kind of gathering of the body, especially with our theology of baptism, that the baptism is the entrance into the new covenant community. We want the local assembly of the new covenant community to be there. Welcome to them. Yeah. We would, we would see that as membership, and we think necessarily implied that the congregation has the keys of the kingdom. Yes. Right? That they to bind. Into the church. Yes. Right? And so baptism is entrance into the church. I think it's necessary that it would take place during the church again. Right? Right. In some instances. Right. So, talking about circumstances of worship should not be seen as a free for all. <laughs> to say whatever we think is something that in our own wisdom might help the worship of God's people can be called a circumstance of worship. Um, I think it's helpful to go to 1 Corinthians 14 and see two principles there for worship, especially as we think about the circumstances of worship. You see in verse 26, Paul says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So we want whatever is done in the worship service to have the goal in mind, the edification of God's people. And then, perhaps more helpfully, 1 Corinthians 14.40, but all things should be done decently and in order. So whatever we're doing in this worship service ought to be helping us to to those two ends. To have an orderly worship service where God's people can be built up and encouraged and the Spirit can minister without being hindered by what we're doing. Okay? Sam Waldron used the language of sanctified common sense in wrestling with these issues and perhaps that's a helpful way to think about it for you, but... We can't get away from the subjective nature of this. So this is where we as a body have to figure out what we believe in these areas. So even with that subjectivity, what we're really talking about with the regulative principle of worship is the fundamental disposition that I want God to tell me how He is to be worshipped. I want God to tell me how I am to approach Him. I don't want to have um, the presumption that I know what God likes and I can offer worship however I may see fit. And that's really at bottom what we're talking about here, is having that attitude, that perspective, that foundation. So... Just a few other points of application with this. We talked about last week the liberating nature of the regulative principle of worship in that we are not binding your consciences to do things here that are not clearly commanded in God's Word. And I had this conversation explicitly with a friend of mine from college. He wanted me to come to a worship service I was not comfortable going to because of what was going to be going on there. And I told him... If you were to come to our service, there would be nothing done here that would violate your conscience. Absolutely nothing. And I think that's a good thing. Whereas if I were to come to this service, you're asking me 
by nature of being there and participating in the service to bind my conscience to something that I think is wrong, that is sinful. And this is where we can really talk about the liberating nature of this. You can come every Lord's Day and you're not worried about what crazy thing we're going to be doing. You know what we're going to be doing. And by virtue of you coming, we assume that you agreed as commanded in Scripture. <laughs> but there's a freeing aspect to that. Um, along with that, the regular principle of worship, I think, is, a, is very helpful for Christian unity. Yes? It depends on what's being done there. So, um, if <clears throat> the issue at play was a woman preaching the Word of God as an elder, as a, as a pastor, and for me, by me going there and receiving the Word of God in this manner, I'm acknowledging that she has this God-given role. She's being blessed by God to preach in a manner that I think Scripture explicitly condemns. So, I felt I couldn't go. Um, in other contexts, Roman Catholicism, going to the Mass, partaking of the Lord's Supper, when they believe this is a representation of the very sacrifice Christ made, that this, this bread and wine becomes flesh and blood, literally, and by taking it, there is a new forgiveness of sins that's taking place. I don't know how we could participate in that in any way, especially given what the New Testament teaches. Does that make sense? So, I, there's going to be... This isn't saying that you can only worship at Reformed churches. <laughs> there's going to be, like, there's going to be all kinds of churches that are doing things on a normal service that might not necessarily violate our consciences. But it is saying that worship is important. So, <clears throat> similarly, with the regular principle of worship and Christian unity, anybody that names Christ can come to this service and participate, and we're not going to be positively doing anything that's going to require them to violate their conscience. Even Presbyterians can come here. Like, the, the doctrine of baptism, yeah, even. The doctrine of baptism is not going to be a factor. There's no reason to be upset. Pentecostals can come here. We're not going to be doing anything that's going to violate their conscience. Now, they might want us to do more than we're willing to do, but we're not going to do anything that's going to violate their conscience. And so, there's a real unity that can come from this that any faithful believer in Christ can come here and worship with a clean conscience. It, it, <clears throat> and it sounds like you're saying it, it's a uh, regular principle leads, lends itself to being simpler. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's going to lend itself to greater unity. It's going to lend itself to uh, more freedom for the people that are coming because of all the different consciences that are involved. There's going to be less conflicts of conscience. Another big implication that is not one that we think about very often in our culture is that the Lord's Day and the worship here is different than the rest of the week. And to put an even finer point on it, is more important 
than the worship in the rest of the week. Not that your worship in the rest of the week is unimportant. It certainly is. But the highlight of the Christian's week is gathering with God's people to worship in a public assembly because, like we talked about last week, Jesus is present in a different way when God's people are gathered than He is otherwise. There's something different and special happening here. Now, we often don't feel that, and that's often because of our own sin, our own distraction, but it's something we can be praying for. Lord, Your Word says, where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am in the midst of them. And that means something different than God's base omnipresence. Lord, help me to recognize that. Help me to recognize when I'm coming to be with God's people, You are there in a different way than You are through the rest of the week. And the last one is that this local church, again, not this building, but this local assembly, this local gathering of believers, we are holy ground when we gather and we belong to God. This assembly is not my church. This assembly is not Caleb's church. And this assembly is not even your church in the possessive sense but it's God's church. And that means something different for our demeanor, our way of behaving when we gather. Are there any other comments or questions? Yeah. So, when we came to the second to last thing, yeah. um, when we come together, that that's more of a pinnacle um, highlight. Is that the Sabbath or the service on the Sabbath? Well, I think it's the actual gathering of God's people. That's what you see in Matthew 18. Yeah. Well, at least the regular worship service. I, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you have to distinguish because that's what the call to worship separates us from. When we do the call to worship, we're beginning the time that we are gathered in the name of the Lord. And there's something different about that time. And when we end the service, we're ending that period of time. So. Like, we love people to come to Sunday school. Yeah. Right. But we're not binding people's conscience that you must attend those things. Right. Yes. And I, I don't believe, and I don't think Joey believes, that right. assembling of ourselves together is necessarily Sunday school. Right. This is, this is the worship service yeah. that we have. If you never come to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, we're not going to go to church discipline on that. Yeah. We might have questions. We want you to come to prayer meeting. But we're not going to do church discipline over that. If you never come to Sunday school, we're not going to do church discipline over that. If you never come to the Lord's Day service and you're a member of this church, we are going to do church discipline. There's something different about the gathering. So if, historically we've always been on Sunday. Yeah. So if for whatever reason we would have to change that to a Thursday and we did all the same things on a Thursday, is it, it's not something special about Sunday? It's that 
now, would it be the same? I'd have to think about that. Um, but the New Testament does call the first day of the week the Lord's Day. That cannot change. Now, does that mean we have to gather and assemble for public worship on the Lord's Day? I don't know. I'd have to think about that more. But there are things that the Bible says about the Lord's Day, and I think the Sabbath commandment extends into the Lord's Day that are over the whole day. But when you're talking about the assembly, there may be something more to consider. Right. And how how we read the book of Acts, even the last part of the book of John, Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, uh, that the first day of the week is highlighted as the time that the people come together. First Corinthians sixteen. Right? Yeah. We don't have another day that's given as an example. And the apostle Paul says explicitly in First Corinthians sixteen, all the churches gather on Sunday, and so we see it as um, to avoid that apostolic example. And that the apostolic example carries with it a, mm-hmm. a commanding part to it. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Does that make sense? Like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> an apostolic example, especially if it's so consistent throughout the book that they always meet on, the, on Sunday, the Lord's Day, to worship. We, we believe, personally, we believe in Scripture that's equal to a command to do mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's a good question, but that's something that we would have to really search the Scriptures for, and like, we cannot get away from the Lord's Day as elevated in the New Testament as different than the other days. So then you have to go through the New Testament and say, what makes us day different? How is it the Lord's Day as opposed to the other days of the week? And I think it's helpful to think about the New Testament example that it's always the day where... God's people are gathering. So, I think we have to quit. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together to study your word here. And we pray that you would help us to have the spirit that whatever we're doing when we're gathered as your people to worship you in your name, that we would want whatever we're doing to be commanded from your word or necessarily contained. I pray that you would help us in our sinfulness to see your word more clearly, that we would submit our consciences to your lordship, and that you would help us to more love our time together. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.